What saved you? Conversations. And that sounds heaps cliche as I sit here in an RUOK t-shirt, but that, that's, that is the reason why I sit here in an RUOK t-shirt because you know, that's what it's about. That's Matt Newlands, a former police officer turned RUOK Day ambassador and mental health advocate. During his decade in the force, Matt faced pain, distress and violence on a daily basis as he sought to protect the community. The job revealed an insight into the ugly side of humanity that only those who work in the emergency services can fully comprehend. When I was spending a majority of my, my week in that environment, I start to get like a warped sense of, of what humanity actually is. Because whilst I said before you see the full spectrum, to be honest, like cops don't get called when things are going well. It also led him to the worst day of his life and the unthinkable moment that will never leave him, being called to a suicide and finding it was his own mate. I know the person that's taken their life, but also know the people that are there as well, you know, that are family members and friends who are who are also responding to a similar scene. Like it's, um, but you know, we're the, we're the police and it's we've still got a role, we've still got a job. The horror sent him on a downward spiral that resulted in him being convicted of a crime and almost ending his own life. But with the love of family and friends at his back and the calling to do something meaningful for others in his heart, he rose from the abyss to become the man he is today, a light in the darkness guiding others towards a brighter future. You can't get it wrong if you're coming at this from a place of compassion. If I truly care about you and I'm trying to, to just be there for you, persist with it. If you're experiencing a personal crisis or having suicidal thoughts, please call Lifeline on 13 11 14. And for those outside of Australia, please call your local crisis hotline. Welcome to Young Blood, a podcast all about young men's health. My name's Callum McPherson. I'm a journalist, and this is our mission to talk about the stuff that matters and isn't talked about enough. Let's do it. This episode is proudly brought to you by Beyond Bank Australia, one of Australia's largest customer-owned banks. Beyond Bank has a strong focus on lending a hand to some of those working on the broader challenges that impact our community and is a big supporter of Young Blood's mission to improve mental health. Matt, why did you join the police force? That's a really big question. Straight off the bat, love it. Um, I want to be a cop since I was four years old. And I think as a child, a lot of kids have this connection to the service spaces, whether it's police, ambos, nurse, soldier, that sort of thing. Um, but for me, as I went through high school, it was now starting to link in back with my identity. I wanted to be of service to the community. I wanted to be part of something bigger than just just me um, and thought I could make a real impact by being a police officer. And how did the reality meet your expectations? To start with, it, it did meet the expectations. I was put into a group of, or I guess a tribe. I was put into, an, into the identity. I was given a badge, I was given a uniform. Um, a sense of belonging. There's a mateship and a camaraderie that occurs in the emergency services, certainly in the police, um, that I guess I hadn't experienced before. So it it gave me that identity. I knew then that I was a police officer. Yeah. And is that part of what drew you to it? Yeah, that's huge. That was a huge part. Yeah, just to be to be part, like, I guess, like I said before, about something, be involved in something that's bigger than me and be able to be of service to the community. That for me was going to make my identity. And what did that do for you personally? I think it gave me a sense of purpose. So I had a place. I knew that um, people saw that I was doing something good in the world. And it gave me this idea that I was going to be able to leave a legacy behind as well, that somehow I was going to be able to make a difference during the time that I got to walk the earth. 
And do you feel like the majority of your colleagues had a similar mindset? Yeah, absolutely. I think underlying that's, that's why I think all, you don't get into those jobs to become rich and famous. Let's be honest. No. You know, there's a, I think there's a, a calling of some description within an individual for them to step into a role like, like that, just to be able to endure the intensity of the environment. Um, I guess the acceptance or, or not so much the acceptance from the community as well at times, be prepared to do things that others aren't prepared to do, run into to danger when others are running out like there's a there's something different in that that's required and how did your career progress where did it start and then how did it track from there yes when I, I joined the academy in 2006 I was I think one of the youngest in the group there's about 18 of us um, did nine months at the academy graduated went to Sturt for six months as a probationary constable and then I was directed up to Port Augusta. So I worked up there for about two years, did my tenure. And then... What was that like in Port Augusta? It was completely different, completely different. Um, I went from having uh, resources, I think, in a metropolitan area and being mm. so close to the city, being sort of surrounded by other areas as well that also had numbers that if things went pear-shaped and you asked for help, you had it pretty quick. And then Port Augusta was three of you on duty. And the nearest person is, you know, potentially half an hour, an hour, lights and sirens away. So if things mm. went sort of belly up, then you were going to be waiting a while. So it was just a different frame of mind that I think you had to be in just to be ready for that. And what did you learn out of that experience and, and having to carry it on your own a lot of the time? Yeah, uh, I think it's a very steep learning curve. And for a lot of it was around effective communication because I think to go to, say, a licensed prems in Port Augusta where things weren't going well. There's a bit of disorder out the front, but you were heavily outnumbered versus maybe going to a, a bar in the city where you had almost unlimited resources available to you. It's not to, it's not to discount how seriously dangerous some of those situations in the city can be, but um, yeah, it was a different type of mindset. So all of a sudden the communication style had to change also because I lived in the community as well. Mm. So when you're talking about a, you know, population's not huge there. Everyone knows each other. It's much more tight-knit. Yeah. You see a lot of the same faces. Mm -hmm. So all of a sudden you go from maybe being in uniform and, and potentially locking someone up earlier in the day to then you're out of uniform, walking down the main street, maybe three or four hours later, and that person's now out on bail. And they see you, you know, pushing your trolley around Woolworths. Mm. <laughs> so, yeah, it's, it's a different environment to be in. So you've just got to be consciously aware of it and... um like I said, that's where the thing, the communication comes into play. Because you're trying to avoid conflict at all costs because mm. often you're going to be outnumbered. Mm. Those skills would have been super transferable for when you came back to the city. Yeah, absolutely. I think, um, you know, even city coppers, that's ultimately your most, your most effective tool. And I think a lot of people forget that. You know, sometimes I think the community almost thinks that cops are out there just, you know, carrying weapons and, and trying to, you know, assert themselves or, or force violence almost onto people to get compliance. But, um, you know, that's kind of the last thing that, that police want to be going to. And if you can resolve something through conversation, then, you know, that's, that's best for everybody. Well, if it comes to violence, it's going to be bad no matter what. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, that's, I think, again, for the police, you've got to be prepared to go there, don't you? Because if, if cops don't, then who does? And from there, um, when you came back to Adelaide? Mm, just came back from Port Augusta, 
and got transferred down to Christie's Beach and spent most of my career down there. Did about five years, I think, from 2009 until the beginning of 2015 in January. I transferred to State Tuck. What did the job show you about humanity? Everything. Um, it showed what people were capable of. And I say that in a positive and a negative sense. So obviously, you know, it showed that people were prepared to um, enact quite serious violence on each other and for um, maybe disappointing reasons as well, like very selfish reasons. But on the other side of that, it also showed a lot of compassion for, you know, that people could show as well. So it was the full spectrum of of humanity that was in that even in my short time you know 10 years in the police is not a real long real long time but yeah i got the full spectrum and what did that do for your perspective outside of work at the time i describe it as going sort of further into a like into a tunnel and into a role and i think so as i progressed into the police a lot of those other labels that i had in the community like being a i guess being you know a brother or a son or a grandson um you know even at times being a husband and a and a father a, a lot of those labels got dropped and left behind because police came first so it sort of disappeared behind the uniform yeah that's right so there is when i talk about identity your identity becomes just that mm. so there is no more like for me anyway, the experience that I had was that Matt Newlands didn't really exist anymore. You know, he had a number, had a uniform, had a badge and, you know, just stepped up every time he was called to. And did that mess with your head yeah. or were you okay with it? Nah, nah. That it's a, for me, it was a, um, it was a process that I don't think I really observed at the time. You know, it was almost, I, I missed it. I missed the transition. I missed, I can't tell you when it is that all of a sudden, um, that's all I was. So it could have been the academy. Uh, I look back now and say like policing was the most important thing in my life. Um, you know, and that's that's a hard statement to say, particularly when, you know, I've got a wife and a, and a daughter. And even then, like when I was in the job, I look back now and say that it had to be um, because of, like, I guess, what I chose to do and the things that I sacrificed. So. Was it necessary to take on that mindset, do you think? Or is it possible to keep them separate? I guess you can only speak from your own experience. Yeah, obviously, like, you know, all of our conversation today will only be from my experience. There's probably coppers out there that'll listen to this and go, man, he's just, you know, he doesn't know what he's talking about. <laughs> that wasn't wasn't for me. So this is always only ever mine. But um, um, yeah, yeah. I, what was the question again? I think I was, is it, was yeah. it necessary to have that mindset of thinking of yourself as a police officer first mm. and, and everything else second? For me, it was. It was necessary because it was how I was able to overcome the... I know that there was still some shifts that were occurring in me where I was maybe upset that I was missing Christmas or a birthday, frustrations that I was missing an engagement party or a wedding. Uh, it became pretty common that if uh, we were invited to any sort of function, it was always going to be a question mark as to whether I was going to be there and likely be that I wouldn't because I generally worked in roles that required me to be working evenings, weekends, yep. you know, that sort of stuff. Cause a lot of that frontline stuff that I enjoyed doing, um, was, yeah, a lot of that stuff was happening at nighttime when everyone else was having a good time and then a bad time. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And we, we see it every, every weekend, don't we? Maybe not so much in COVID, but you know, we, we certainly did for a while. What, jobs were you called to most often good, what good did, question what did no, you no. see a lot yeah. of 
Yeah, I think, um, and I, the, I think the reason why I hesitated there is because, like, interesting that most of them, you know, were probably revolving around people's mental health, you know, their mental well-being. Um, I think, you know, people don't always choose to just exert violence on on another person. You know, there's something going on for that person that has resulted in that behaviour or resulted in that outcome. Um, it, yeah. So I think when I, I think about even, you know, the assaults that you might go to or, um, you know, domestic violence, you know, or just, I guess, even a, an individual in distress or crisis, a lot of it probably came back down to their, their own mental well-being and, and what they were experiencing at the time. I think the public sort of thinks is police, you know, running down the street, chasing the bad guys most mm. of the day mm. and chasing after people who snatch purses and, you know, having lights and yeah. sirens on doing pursuits and exciting stuff like that. Mm. When I was a reporter in Townsville, we could listen to the cops on radio mm -hmm. all day. And I would say that it was either domestic violence or suicide about 70% of the time, mm -hmm. yeah. uh, which was surprising to me to learn that that was the reality is that most cops, especially those starting out mm -hmm. who were on the beat, spent a lot of their time going to those calls all day, which must really wear on young people to be confronted with that and, and have to deal with it, you know, because even, yeah. even talking about it's so difficult often, mm. so let alone actually having to go and deal with it. Yeah, well, when you consider I joined the police when I was 20 years old, I got into the academy. I had my 21st birthday at the academy and, you know, it was it was basically non-existent because I had, you know, exams and I was trying to be a cop. So I was, you know, you know, this upstanding <laughs> citizen that just didn't put a foot wrong. I'm yeah. not, I probably had maybe missed like out. Two, <laughs> maybe I had like two beers. Bad call, bad call. <laughs> should have waited maybe. <laughs> maybe, maybe I should have joined later. Um, But yeah, so then when we talk about like the identity forming through those years, you know, and I was big, and I my identity was being shown to me as this, as a police officer. So, when I was spending a majority of my my week in that environment, start to get like a warped sense of of what humanity actually is. Because whilst I said before, you see the full spectrum. Let's be honest; like cops don't get called when things are going well. No. You know, you don't get invited over to someone's house when you just hey, just thought we'd share the celebration with you. That's right. They call when things have gone pear shaped. So, and you're spending all day and all night mm, in that scenario all the time. Mm. And so you start to think, man, if this is what life is, then like this is this is terrible. I think to start with, there's an idea that maybe I could do something to to change that. You mm. know, and like. I don't know, maybe they've just been waiting for me to arrive and, <laughs> you know, turning point. But that's not the case, you know, because the, the amount of time that we might spend as a police officer in someone's life is minimal. And it's only a time of disorder, distress, crisis. And then we try to do as best as we can to restore some level of order and then move on. Mm. And that's it. So you don't necessarily see through what it is that's going on for that person. You just basically are a consequence to someone's behavior. That's yeah. it. And then move on. And there's no time. You're only part of the puzzle. Yeah. And that's what yeah. obviously can be so frustrating for so many police that they, they can't go further. They can't control the other parts of society that these people have to travel through, especially, you know, mm. the, the courts and, and mm. education and things that all funnel into mm -hmm. the results that you have to deal with. Yeah, exactly. And you think even, you know, even the media that follow through some of that, that process as well, mm. like everybody, like you say, touches it, everybody contributes to that experience. And that can be, that can't, you know, it's not always a good thing. And what have you seen from as far as um, coping mechanisms and what coping mechanisms did you have and the, the police around you for you seeing that stuff all the time? Yeah, uh, work more. 
was basically the was this the strategy and i think because of so when i put a uniform on i knew what my role was i knew what my um, responsibilities were i knew what uh, i guess authorities that i had it all made sense and uh, for a for a long time you i started to rely on that so then when i took the uniform off and got back into my i tried to step back into some of those other roles in life and i didn't really know what they were or where i fit in them because other adjustments were being made now so you know you think like if if you're never there if you're never at home for all of the important things then relationships change at home dynamics change so to accommodate your absence so similar to i guess probably fly in fly out workers mm. you know you're gone for a few weeks you know if i was on night shift for example i would be out th for seven nights in a row and then i'd come home and i would be in bed through the day i might have like dinner with the family, which was basically my breakfast. Yeah. Uh, and then I'd be getting ready to go back to work. So mm. that crossover, you're not there to help, you know, prepare for the week. You're not there to do any of the, like any of the, the chores, I guess, around the place. I wasn't spending a great deal of time with my daughter for that week. And I certainly didn't spend any quality time with my wife for an entire week. Mm. And then you have a couple of days off and then you're into Arvo's and it's maybe the same sort of thing again, where you're just ships in the night. So. And that really weighs on the family unit. And yeah, obviously, if you're a family man, plays on your mind as well, mm. where there's not really any other option because you, you have to sleep and you have to work. Yep. But you're thinking, you know, is this worth it? Mm. And obviously, your partner or your family is going to be mm. asking those questions too. So there's mm. that's very tough. Another thing that the general public wouldn't, wouldn't think of. No, and I think because those shifts occur as well, I talk about joining the police when I was 21. Like, I wasn't married and didn't have a kid when that happened. So uh, I was able to invest all of my time and all of my identity into that role. So then as things occur outside of life, you know, outside of work life uh, and, and roles change there and you try to connect back in with that. And now there's these competing priorities, but policing's always come first and there's an expectation that it always will. Mm. Now you start to find yourself in a pretty like internal conflict. That's pretty intense. What about desensitization? How far along the way do you feel like you went towards being desensitized? And did you find that you, you became more or less compassionate or how did you view situations differently the further you progressed mm. in policing? So the desensitization uh, certainly was a big, a big factor in, I think, my um, downfall as well. So I think compassion was hard. It was hard to then see any like genuine victim. It was hard to like really take in a situation for what it was because you were seeing it over and over and over again mm. and expected to see it again. Yeah. Um, so it's hard not to get bitter mm. because you imagine that, well, this isn't going to stop. This same person is going to do mm. this again and get the same result. And it's very difficult to not just get frustrated by mm. that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Cause that's, that's, that is, was my perception of their environment. This will always be like this, you know, so now you're just getting in my way and this is frustrating because I've, I would like to be going to do other things and, you know, maybe more important things. So compassion was a, was a hard one. And then you start to disconnect with why it was that you joined in the first place. Mm. And so did you start to change in ways that you didn't like? Absolutely. So I think the, my behavior became like, I was less compassionate for myself then as well and just stopped caring. Um, I think by the time I got out of the police, I, I was already in a place where it, I thought it didn't really matter if it tomorrow and it didn't come, mm. you know, and in some days that was almost a, almost a preferred option. Tell us about that horrible day in 2013. Mm. Yeah. So, um, it's, 
it was a very significant day. Um, a friend of mine had and colleague had been struggling with a fair bit of stuff at home um, and had shared little bits with some, some of the people at work. Um, I was working um, an evening shift and got a phone call from one of the guys back at the office that said that there was a, um, a job that I needed to be aware of. And uh, yeah, unfortunately for that particular evening, uh, my friend had, had taken his, his own life um, and it had a, a huge ripple effect through not only his, his close community, certainly through the work community. Uh, and there was a, an expectation, I think, of us still having to, we still have to do our job and we still have to work uh, we still have to be police the community still expecting us but um even in that circumstance though that's you know would be something that so many people dread and that mm. is so extreme to actually turn up to a suicide call and have it be someone that you mm. know yeah that's right and to not just i guess know the person that's taken their life but to also know the people that are there as well you know that are family members and friends who are who are also responding to a similar scene like it um but you know we're the we're the police, and it's we've still got a role, we've still got a job, and when we talk about job first, you know, in those environments, there's someone has to, someone still has to do things, um, you know. And were I'm, you able to do that? Yeah. So I think on the on the night, um, I, I think there's even other times throughout my career where I was able to, like, my wife got to a point where she said that she could tell when I was working, so because I could, I would just disengage. So she'd pick up the phone. Or she'd call me and just go like, oh, I'll call you later because, you know, I'm not talking, I'm not speaking to Matt. Mm. Um, and I think there's a way of doing that, just shutting off and just getting the job done. So, which is, you know, then just part of that suppression of all of the things that you're taking in at the time, all of the emotions that come with that, not actually seeing it for what it is. Yeah, so shutting it all down. Yeah, and shutting it all out because it's necessary because to connect in with what was actually going on was going to be too distressing and was would get in the way of the process that was still required. So did you feel like you were wearing a mask when you had the uniform on or that you turned into that? Yeah, every time, every time. And I think there was a safety in it to start with. Um, and then there was like a, a shift where it started to become a disconnect that I didn't like having to, to be that anymore. Um, you know, talk about being a consequence for people's behavior. I was like, you know, I, I, I think even in one conversation when I was at my worst, I was describing myself as the darkness because no one ever liked seeing us. And the roles that I did meant that I was only ever chasing those that didn't want to be caught, um, you know, that had committed crimes against people that were more serious in nature as well. So there was this constant idea that humans are, are just quite destructive creatures. And... With that night, how did you immediately change in yourself after that? Um, on reflection now, I think that it was there was a turning point there around none of this really matters because if we if this is how it ends, then you know for for him, um, it, it happens regularly in the emergency services. It's no it's no secret that the suicide rate is is quite high. Um, but it became this, well, what does it really matter? You know, if this is, if this is who I am and this is what I do, then none of, none of my actions matter anymore. Um, so I'll just do whatever I feel like and don't, yeah, just didn't really value myself anymore. Yeah. So nihilism. Mm. Yeah. That's rough. Mm. Um, 
what happened from there? What was the the next few years like? And you know, was it a, a slow burning sort of descent, or uh, was it mm. more or less immediate? No, I think it was a, it was a slow burning a process. I guess it probably depends on your perspective of time frame as well. So twenty end of twenty thirteen, um, you know that that particular incident occurred, and you can't also discount the the years previous as well of the accumulation of of trauma that um, you know contributes to to one's mental health as well. But and had do you reckon you'd registered any of that to that point? Or had it just nah. been subconscious building up? Yeah, no, nah, I don't think so. I think even the association had had brought over some expert who spoke to like to a group of people. Me being one of them, I, I went along to one of these evenings where he spoke about hypervigilance and you know the impact of policing on on your life. And I was like, man, that must really suck for for other others that experience that. And I think yeah. now I was probably in the middle of that myself. Just because you were so consumed by yeah. this this idea of of yeah. you, the police officer, that yeah. you didn't realize it wasn't me. I got you know I had all my stuff together so you know I was I was in control of of all of that so um so yeah it was it was a slow burn I we went back to work you know I started to there's a lot of that comparative suffering to say well I don't you know I wasn't as good of friends with with this guy as maybe others were and I didn't work on his team so it should be it's more fair for the team to be able to take time off and and you know I still I still think that um you know there's a lot of people out there that are hurting a lot more than than I was. Mm. So we just kept, we went back to work We put the uniform back on and we just kept doing it. And we just kept, so I just kept on suppressing that going, okay, well, that's, this is what it is now. So, you know, it's kind of like this, this further acceptance of going darker or deeper down into that dark tunnel of, well, I chose this, I signed up for this. I can't complain about it. You know, I read the brochures and followed the, followed the progression of the career and um, I was good at it. You know, there was, I, I was getting qualified in different areas and, um, you know, I was, I was having leadership opportunities as well. And I saw myself as being a career, career copper. I knew that I would be destined for great things. And I believe SAPOL would be my platform, mm. but so yeah, it took a while. What happened to your policing in those next few years when you had that, that mindset? Mm. I think, um, I started to push a lot more boundaries and that was more so around my own, my own safety. So you know, rather than waiting for, for backup would, you know, I'd, I'd just go into a, a busy hotel, for example, that I knew that there was problems with. And uh, rather than waiting for more people, there might've only been two or three of us. Um, we'd just go do the work anyway. Cause I thought, well, the worst thing that gets happened, that happens is I'll get hurt. And so what? Um, so yeah, I think it just started to just switch off. I think on a lot of those things, I went, I went to a lot more of the intense jobs, you know, might drive a little bit quicker or, you know, push a little bit harder than maybe you, maybe I should have, just because I didn't care what what would happen to me if um was it when, did it feel like self punishment? Yeah, there was a lot that I carried, particularly after after my friend, because you know I I truly believed that the police restore order, so I was the I was the police, I was there, I was in charge for a, a short period of time that night. Um, it was my my role to restore order to that and I couldn't you, know, you can't bring people back to life so um it was like all right well this was somehow my fault that yeah I, I should be I should have done more I should have been better you know insert every other judgment could come up with and so yeah it didn't, it didn't matter I'll punish I'll be punished for this then. so you were carrying that guilt yeah and then the output of that was you being more aggressive and 
more foolhardy with looking for danger. Yeah. Almost like you were mm -hmm. inviting something bad to happen to you. Yeah. 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 Everywhere. You know, I thought that someone's got to go deal with some of these jobs that are coming up and it I'll happily let it be me because if, if someone, if a copper gets hurt and that that's me, then I probably deserve it anyway. But to hear, you know, if, if another copper got hurt and I didn't go to that job, that's, you know, that didn't sit well with me. So, so it sounds like you always cared about others more than yourself and then that increased, but not in a positive way for a long time. No, well, I think that's, that's the cult. Like that is a culture is that in the police, others are always more important. You know, you, I said, you don't join the police or, you know, the fire department or, you know, you know, whatever emergency services to, for yourself, you do it for others. Um, you know, even some of the work I do now, people are still like the service personnel are still saying the same. That they're, they're still trying to be of service to other people. Um, yeah, and it's not always. Often, it's not healthy. What did it do to your relationships when you became this sort of uh, robot? Guy? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's that's the best way to describe it. Robocop. That's all it was. It's emotionless. It was just completely shut down to anything, anything. And I think then which is probably another reason why going into more intense situations is because there's, there is a feeling of something and that more mm. often than not is fear. Um, but it was still an emotion. It wasn't that numbness that nah. you felt most of the time. No. Nah. So it kind of, you know, it's an extreme like risk taking behavior, which mm. wasn't just at home. Like it was outside. I was, I was drinking more. Um, you know, I certainly didn't care about any of the relations. I didn't have any friends like they weren't in the police. And, and even then, like we have some really close friends in the police, but we we're only ever policing. Mm. So it was hard then because we kind of had obligations to fulfill family commitments and stuff outside. But even when I was with family, I just wanted to go back. Like I wanted to be back in the job because it made more sense. Because you didn't know who you were outside yeah. of it. Because SAPO was my identity. Do any of those situations stick out particularly where you really did take risks yeah yeah one which resulted in like you know me separating from sapo in quite dramatic fashion um that was 2015 so things at home were already in a bad way you know i'd betrayed my family i had moved out for a period of time i was suicidal myself um i was really struggling with who it was that that i was um believed myself to be a bad person and you know then tomorrow might not ever come. And I thought that I still had that under control whilst I was at work. Um, I only took, I think I took a week off at one point uh, and that didn't really do anything. I, th I felt like it made me worse because mm. I couldn't go back. Because um, you're just left with yeah. yourself and you didn't want to be yourself. Yeah, that's right. I was, I was, I think I was just too scared to see who it was that, that I was. And um, so I wanted to get back into the job because it felt a bit safer. So I went back to work. Uh, there was a night in July, uh, we had a job. It was a bit of a nothing, bit of a nothing job, to be honest. Um, I was working with a couple of other guys. I was a state tactical response group at this stage as well. We came into possession of a, of a baseball bat in, in lawful means. Um, we didn't end up charging the person with anything. It was, like I said, it was a nothing job, but rather than book that bit of property in to our property and follow all of those procedures, took it back to the office and it just floated around there for a bit with this idea that we'll give it back next time we see this person. She was known. Um, but that aside, there was a lot of banter, a lot of just rubbish talk uh, in the office about keeping it. And I took it seriously and went down that path. And, and one of the guys on the team, um, 
he he did what he thought was the best thing to do and and i guess there's always going to be mixed opinions on what's the best thing to do in that scenario but um yeah he went to anti-corruption branch and about a week later i was arrested so yeah and all of a sudden my identity was completely stripped yeah what happened then um so on the day they they put me in a cell at the watch house um which was obviously a big thing because for 10 years or nine and a half years whatever it was at the time i had put people on the other side of that door and now it was my turn um and i believed that you know i I believed it was my turn i'd I'd, you know done the wrong thing and i I was seeking a punishment and i found one Mm. um they they yeah they charged me with aggravated theft um i was I was bailed to appear in court at a later later date, but they obviously they suspended me as well, as you'd expect. And I remember the suspension papers being served was the the worst part of the whole experience, um, because all of a sudden it meant that I I wasn't wasn't me anymore. You know, I was nothing, and I, you know, I couldn't talk to any of the any of the people that I. Um, that I knew I wasn't able to talk to any of my colleagues well now you know ex colleagues um you know we talk about isolation being you know in the are you okay message as well like are you okay talks about isolation the you know the feeling of burden on another and also having the means to take a life are sort of the three you know sort of ingredients that are that are necessary and I felt I had already felt like I was a burden on others because I was making a mess of everything I touched and everything I got involved in. I certainly had the means to be able to take my life. And, um, and I think through that last final act of now you can't talk to your community and I had no one else outside of the job, that was it. Like now I was completely isolated. And your identity had disintegrated and it must have felt at that point like it was going to be too much of a task to build a new one yeah absolutely and i thought there's there's no coming back from this um you know i had that's all i was was a cop and then you start i started to think about the impact that it would have on my family you know the impact that it would have on my my grandparents you know my, my grandfather was was still alive at the time and um you know he had served in the air force uh, my brother was in the military um yeah like you just start to think of all of those flow-on effects of it's not just it's not just an individual that signs up to the police or or that type of career the it's family the family sign up as well and you know a lot of people talk about what supports are in place for the individual but you know that that is important but they they don't really ever ask the question what supports are in place for the family because there's there's none you know there's nothing there so for my family then to my wife in particular to have to then carry that knowing that I was already already broken I was in a really bad way, but now like this had happened as well. And not only the impact that have on me, but what does that mean for her? What does it mean for us? Um, Mm -hmm. You know, we were, we were in a pretty bad way, our relationship. um, She was still fighting. Thankfully, we're still married now and have a really great marriage, but um, only because of, only because of her and how hard she fought to to bring me back. So um, yeah, it was a, it was a really, really difficult time to just think that there was anything possible other than ending it all. What saved you? Conversations. 
and that sounds heaps cliche as I sit here in an RUOK t-shirt, but that, that's, that is the reason why I sit here in an RUOK t-shirt because you know, that's what it's about. Um, it was a conversation that I had with, with a boss uh, after, after I was bailed from the watch house. Uh, my, my boss, he was down at the, the watch house as well and he said, oh, I'll give you a lift home. And we had a conversation on the way home and it was, was not about the job and it wasn't about um, what had happened or anything like that. He, he was asking me questions about life outside of the police. He was talking, I remember him asking about my dad and my mom and, you know, my, my wife and my daughter and just trying to find a reason. Yeah, exactly right. And I don't, I'm not sure if it was intentional on his behalf or not, but um, that's, that's exactly what was happening is that all of a sudden it, it didn't feel, it just didn't feel so heavy anymore. Um, and when I remember when I got back home, didn't he didn't take anything away from the situation. He didn't fix anything. He was still there, but uh, it was connecting in with maybe who else I was. So you told him all of it? Or? Yeah, I, I answered the questions. And um, I think because I was in this, like, this is probably it. You know, when I, I knew that when I was in the watch house, that was my last day. Um, and because I'd had thoughts like that before and thought, well, <laughs> It's certainly not coming back from this one, so this will this will be it. Um, and I think I just started to open up to him about you know they were pretty general questions about my family structure and um, yeah. And then all of a sudden we got back home, and I think he was a bit worried about what the afternoon might look like for me. Um, and and I remember saying to him, "I know what you're thinking," um, and like, "Nah, not today." So um, I went inside and had to try to make a few phone calls to people and, and start just piecing together the next couple of hours. So what was the effect of that one conversation? Like what did that change in your mind from leaving the watch house to getting home? Mm -hmm. um, hope, I think. It was a disconnect from the darkness. It showed me that there was, or it reminded me that there were other things that were in my life right then. And I'm not even so sure that at the time I really recognized it for being that other than thankfully my brain did. Um, Cause it's only on, it's when I think back to that time now as to how I, what it's, what it did for me. And so then it was really around like, let's just get through the next, let's just see how this plays out. Yeah, that doesn't mean like, let's just see how the next 60 years plays out. Cause I wasn't in a good healthy space. And that sounds quite overwhelming when you start to, <laughs> yeah. you know, when you're in a state of like that, but um, it was more about let's just see how the next, see what happens like this afternoon, you know, see what happens when my wife finds out she was at work um, when all of this stuff had happened and my daughter was at kindy. Um, you know, let's just see how this, this plays out. And then did you communicate with your wife after that? Yeah, yeah. We had, um, we had started to have a, a few more, you know, involved conversations about stuff that was happening at home certainly started to open up a lot more about stuff that was going on at work and, and just generally what was then going on for me and um, how I was struggling. And, and it wasn't an overnight thing. It's not like the next morning I woke up feeling refreshed and ready to tackle the world because I still had a whole heap of stuff that I had to get through. Um, yeah, court, SAPOL stuff, you know, all of that. Still still struggled with the, the suicidal thoughts, still struggled with paranoia. You know, that went on for months. Did you start to get emotional with your wife talking about these things? Did you feel emotions mm. for the first time in a long time? Yeah, yeah, I think that was it. It was starting to connect back in. Go, well, let's actually talk about some of this stuff and acknowledge what's going on. Like, mm. You know, and it was a, it, the turning point was beginning of 2016 um, where I ended up writing a letter, which 
I still have it. I've still got the journal from then and it's, and it's some pretty tough reading when I check back in on it, but um, I keep it because it reminds me of how far I've come. And um, I, I started to write what almost looked like a suicide note to start with, but it wasn't that, you know, and I even named that in the letter when I, I read it to my dad and I read it to my mom and um, just said, you know, I'm, this is this stuff about me, these allegations and stuff. There's, there's some truth to this stuff. And I want to do something about it. In 2016, I was like, I'm not going to be a victim to this anymore. You know, a, for me, an individual gets to define themselves in the moment and they get to define themselves like in that day or the next day. And we've all got stuff that we've, we've done that we probably, you know, maybe regret or wish Absolutely. we'd done different. Um, but it doesn't but, have to define you forever. No, nah, exactly right. And so for me, it was like, well, if, if, I'm not going to take my life. If I'm going to choose to live life, then I'm going to choose to live life. So well, what life do I want to live then if I'm going to hang around? Um, and for me, that was about just talking you know, to everybody because I knew how important it was to me. Um, it was quite selfish to start with, but I think other people were getting something from the conversations as well. And it wasn't all, you know, oh, my life sucks because I've just ruined my career and I'm struggling with my marriage. It was really about like, you know, who are you? And, you know, how did you find that out? And um, it was trying to be a bit more optimistic, not not positive, because it's a bit of a rubbish situation, but I was trying to be optimistic, like things can get better. Mm. You know, if I just start making little, little bits each day, start making, digesting bits of information that is different to maybe what I was digesting before. So rather than constantly seeing people, you know, being mean to each other and just causing like, crazy violence to each other. What if I go looking for stuff that's a bit more optimistic and hopeful and started to just reprogram my brain? So that was January, 2016 was the turning point. I stumbled across some YouTube videos by Dr. Eric Thomas, the ET, you know, hip hop preacher. And some of the stuff it just got through because he delivers with such intensity, which is what my brain needed because it was so shut off. He just got through. And I was like, yeah, you know what? I can do this. And it was like hours that I would spend. And when I'd find myself in a really shit space, my wife would say, I think you just need a bit of ET. And I'd sit, I'd sit on YouTube and just you know, watch videos and just going like, you know, what is this? Um, but man, it was effective. And yeah. And so I just kept, I just kept talking. I just kept talking because I knew that I didn't, I went, I started to engage a psychologist. I had been seeing one throughout 2015 anyway, and not really engaging with that process, but yeah, I was just talking to everybody. My mates in particular, they they knew what was going on. I had two mates in particular, which I still say today, they kept me alive. You know, every day they'd call me and just, it wouldn't be like, oh, Matt, you know, how's life? It was just, you know, what do you got on for today? And, you know, can we come around? Can we see you? And they'd, they'd just stop in or they'd send me text messages, you know, just thinking of you, man, like, love you, bro, like that sort of stuff. And it was always just so well-timed. And I thought that's powerful, the power of words of another to to just keep another it was like oxygen it was just keeping me alive and you know i, I borrowed their belief in me because i didn't believe in myself at the time and the more you talked what happened inside you the more i talked i started to find myself i started to learn things um about emotion i, I actually started to find things that that brought me some level of joy um and value so I started to just observe things. So I would, 
you know, I went and tried like yoga and a sweat lodge and all these things that I previously I'd be like, there's no way I'd ever do any of that stuff. But yeah. I was like, let's just try it. Just a full 180. Yeah. Pretty much doing the opposite of, of what you would do before. Thought because whatever I was doing before wasn't working. working. <laughs> <laughs> so let's just flip it, you know, and just give that a crack and just, okay, well, some things didn't work and some things did. Mm. Yeah. And how did you get involved with working in mental health? So after the police... Um, so 2016, halfway through the year, um, SAPOL, they sacked me as a result of, um, of taking the bat and, um, and the courts decided to convict me as well, which as I pled guilty in January, um, I indicated to my, my legal team that I wanted to plead guilty because I had in fact taken it. Mm. Um, so all of a sudden I found myself convicted ex-cop, you know, which Who is- Who would have thought? Yeah, I know, which is a- which has got like a really intense label, doesn't it? You know, people, they go like, oh, you know, wow, that's... Yeah, you found that intensity that. you wanted. Yeah, exactly. Previously. Yeah, I got you. Yeah, I get people's attention with um with that. That's for You're sure. You're a bad guy. They think that. <laughs> and people are excited by this story. And then they, when they find out what it is, they're like, man, that's actually pretty disappointing. But yeah. Um, like you're a big softie. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> um, so... Yeah, that I got into a bit of business development in basically whatever job I could find because, like I said, 2016 was still really difficult. We talk about transition out. I didn't know who I really – I was still finding out who I was. I didn't know how to transfer 10 years of policing back into the private world and how people would find that valuable if mm. they would find it valuable. Did a few different bits and pieces, um, I guess just testing things and just took whatever opportunity came up because – you know, you can't be too picky when you're a convicted ex-cop that's been in the advertiser. So um, you go with whatever you can get to pay the mortgage. Um, and then um, I was like, no, nah, you know what? This, these things aren't working for me. I'm, I'm, I'm still at my core here to be of service. I'm still destined for great things. And yes, APOL isn't my platform, but I'll, I'll make my own then. Um, I'll build my own. So um, yeah, I, I started just to look around at what, what I needed to get into community services mental health service i didn't really know much about it um turns out by doing 10 years in the police they they give you a lot of certificates for for that stuff um which then makes sense to people in the private sector is to go well you know when you've got certificates in leadership and management and business administration and community services yeah, and transferable a lot of transferable stuff mm. and i think a lot of coppers don't realize that um so i got i got snapped up um by one of the um the ngos here in adelaide and um yeah i've just been taken under their wing and been shown and introduced to a lot of people and yeah, really, really enjoyed the, really enjoyed the ride. Now I get to be of service. And why have you become an Are You Okay Day ambassador? So that decision for me was, I think we've touched on already, is I knew the power of a conversation. Um, I didn't even know community ambassadors were a thing until my, my cousin in Sydney is also a community ambassador. I was only just messaging her just, just before, um, cause this obviously gets a bit busy this time of year for both of us. Yeah. Um, she had said about you know this this thing that she was a community ambassador and so i reached out to are you okay and it's like what does this mean and um basically it's just sharing the message and the power of conversation and it's in like really it's an education space you know we're, we're not talking to people that are necessarily the people that are struggling but we're trying to look at instilling some confidence and encouraging people to ask just some of those what can be quite a difficult conversation i know it gets thrown around a fair bit but for some people, there's a there's a bit of fear. What if someone says no? So for me, I wanted to get behind that because I thought it was a real opportunity to help educate others and give them that confidence that to go ask if they recognise that something's different in a friend. Um, 
you know and people said that to me yeah we saw you weren't really quite the same but didn't really know what to say or how to say or how to ask and um i think that yeah by me doing this hopefully there's a few people out there that can that feel confident to do it themselves so what if someone says they're not okay yeah good question um i think the biggest thing about that is being prepared for that for them to say yeah i'm not going i'm not traveling so well um because i think in that preparation there is this understanding of okay well if i know this person if i'm going to go and have a chat with with callum and ask him how he's going what if he says that he's not okay what am i going to do next and and what what is it that i can offer and then what is it that i could maybe refer him to so depending on how that conversation goes so if that was to happen it really is about well is this conversation like do you want to sit and have a chat about it because for a lot of people you don't have to be a counselor a psychologist or anything like that you don't have to be a professional in this space yeah you can't be no just willing to listen that's it just willing to listen because like that drive home from the watch house for me you know that boss didn't do anything other than just listen to me he asked questions and he was engaged so if they say they're not traveling so well okay let's just engage this conversation then you know what's going on for you you know how can i be involved in this what is it do you know what do you know what it is that you need because that can also be a, a difficult thing as well so it's listening listening to that person with the intent to actually listen not to respond not to fix not to take responsibility but listen just to be able to hold space and from your own experience what effect does that have emotionally on that person i think to actually feel like you're heard is quite a powerful a powerful feeling to be able to share something with another human being humans aren't designed for isolation you know we're we're a pack animal um you know that's there's a there's a torture in that is by putting people in solitary confinement so i think to be able to share something and to be heard by another is is really that feeling of acceptance and i think once things are shared you know that whole a problem shared is a problem halved as cliche as it sounds is actually true like for me it was it was no one stepped in and could take away my actions i had to take full accountability and full responsibility for my actions i still do you know i'm still still a convicted ex-cop um you know for, and that was that's still, what we're calling this episode yeah. <laughs> yeah feel free you might get if you know more people might be drawn to it they're like i want to hear that story um but yeah, you know, like it, it is that it is an acceptance. If you're heard, you matter. You, that's it. Yeah, you can call that the name of your podcast. That was, but that's it. That is it. There is value. Then you know, there's there's you. It's a perceived value, and it's and it's a felt value. Someone is actually giving me their time, and and hearing what I'm saying and acknowledging that. Yeah, that sounds like it's pretty full on for you. And there's no judgment in that experience or trying to compare it to your own experience because no. another common one is playing whatever it is down because oh, i've been through something worse yeah. but there's a way to do that as well where relating to someone is a good thing mm. but with them being the one who needs the attention absolutely because if if you'd said oh you know i'm struggling a bit because i just lost my job and you oh, say yeah, oh that's too. nothing exactly if i you, lost two jobs you're like that's oh. not that's not helpful but if you yep. say yeah i've been through that myself and i mm. i felt this way and I, i'm listening to you that's right Then that's different then that's that's there's a level of connection there mm. um and i think when you can do that for for another person and really listen it it starts to create space then for you know encouraging action because there's a trust that's starting to build as well. So if I'm actually 
feeling as though I'm being heard by you as we're talking about what's going on for me. And then we land at this space where I go like, I'm not actually too sure what to do with this. Um, you might have an idea, you might have a suggestion for me. Um, and it might be putting in two or three things on the table for us to look at and see what I might connect with. But now I'm going to do that. That person has to know that you really care first yep. because there's a lot of trust in opening up to, you know, the most sort of sacred parts of ourselves mm. that mm -hmm. we don't share with the rest of the world. That's it. I think there's a motivation of the other that's, you know, I, I know that they're just trying to get the best for me now. So I'm listening. So what actions can we take for Are You OK Day and then mm -hmm. in the rest of the year as well? Yeah, and I'm, I'm glad you said like the rest of the year because I think sometimes there's this Are You OK Day and it's just one day. Um, it's not. It's it's every day, Are You OK Day. Um, you know, the, the actions are really going to be led by the individual, but I would strongly encourage people to, you know, don't underestimate the power of just being able to have a conversation in the morning around maybe the coffee shop in the workplace. Um, you know, the coffee machine, the workplace, or maybe the coffee shop before you walk into work, or maybe it's the, you might offer up to go for a walk to work. You might park in the same spot, you know, whatever, whatever those little points of connection are is not underestimating the power of those because I guess even in a, in a work environment, maybe you might be the only person that that person actually gets to have a conversation with. They might hang on that coffee in the morning with Callum because that's the only time they get to really just check in about their weekend. Um, so actions can be quite perceived to be quite small, but hugely significant. They might also be, you know, have you spoken to your wife, your husband, your partner? Have you spoken to your, you know, your mom or dad, or, or have you got any other friends you can share this stuff with? Have you spoken to your GP about it? You know, do you have a counselor? Is that something that you, you'd want to do? Cause you know, again, I'm happy to, jump on Google and see if we can find something like it doesn't have to be this really intense process either. Um, you know, this taboo topic, but for a lot of people, I think, um, yeah, just those everyday conversations. Yeah. And don't assume that those who seem like they've got it all together necessarily do, you know, ask them yeah. as well. Absolutely. You know, I think the, the environment we live in in today's age with social media and that sort of stuff, it's, you know, it's some people are like, oh, I can't believe that happened to this particular person. They looked so happy or you just, you don't, you don't ever know. It's, you're looking for those small adjustments. You know, I don't, me and you have never met before today. So it's going to be really difficult for me to pick any differences in your presentation or your behavior, but I'm sure that you've got a couple of close mates or, you know, family members that might go, hang on a second, you know, Callum doesn't usually talk like that. Trust that gut feeling. Trust it. Trust it. Because, you know, if... You can't get it wrong if you're coming at this from a place of compassion. If I truly care about you and I'm trying to, to just be there for you, persist with it. Yeah. What do you see when you reflect on everything that you've been through and the man that you are today? I see a lot of lessons learned. <laughs> um, uh, I see, I see a, a journey and... Um, my wife said to me probably a few weeks ago now, do you think you do the stuff you do now because of what happened to you in the police? Um, or, you know, basically to flip it around. So why is it that you do what you do? Is it a consequence or was it necessary? Mm. So did all the stuff in the police happen so that you could do this? And I think I'm now starting to realize that um, it doesn't really matter. You know, <laughs> we're here now. So um, I've learned some stuff. Um, I've experienced some pretty intense moments. Um, I think about the fact that 
there was two particular days in my life where I chose to not see tomorrow, but I'm here. Um, and that gives me, that gives me more hope that, um, you know, if things could be like that bad and now I'm here, like imagine what can happen in the next five years. Cause you know, I'm in a, like, I'm ready for the next five years and <laughs> five years ago, I wasn't ready for the next, you know? Well, we're all glad you're here now. Thanks, man. <laughs> and Thanks. for a convicted ex-cop, mm. you're a pretty good guy. Cheers. <laughs> Thanks, man. If you're a fan of the work we're doing or have a suggestion for the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts and leave a comment. You can follow Youngblood Men's Health Matters on Facebook, Instagram and YouTube and visit our website youngbloodmedia.com.au to stay up to date. And most importantly, if this conversation resonated with you, share it with someone you love and start a conversation of your own. This is Youngblood. Thanks for being part of the mission. Catch you next time.